Morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Richard. I'm going to start with uh, two statements, two, two rather big statements. The first is this, how we treat the poor and how we respond to injustice are key litmus tests of our Christian faith. And the second statement is this, that one of the greatest threats and dangers to an authentic Christian faith and witness is selfishness. If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Nehemiah 5, where we find our restoration man facing yet another problem and challenge, only this time it comes from within. It's not coming from outside forces. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites are nowhere to be seen in this chapter. The hassles in Nehemiah chapter 5 are happening amongst and between the believers as a result of some alarming acts of greed by God's people. There's widespread poverty and injustice. There's been a famine in, in the land, but rather than help each other or, or give to each other or share together, certain greedy Christians are taking the opportunity to up prices and exploit their brothers and sisters causing many people to have to sell their fields and sell their vineyards and sell their homes just to be able to feed their hungry families. Money is then being lent at exorbitant rates. High taxes are wreaking havoc. Kids are having to be sold into slavery. Crippling debt is a growing problem. And as a consequence, there is suffering. And it all sounds too familiar. Two and a half thousand years later, and the harsh realities of poverty and justice are still alive and well. And so it's no wonder, take a look at verse 1 of chapter 5, that there is a loud outcry from the people against their fellow Jews. So what's Nehemiah going to do? What's he going to do this time with this problem, which has clearly got the potential to completely scupper the rebuilding project? I mean, if this isn't addressed, half walls are going to remain half walls. For anyone who, who is visiting us today, we've been kind of tracking Nehemiah's story for a few months now. And almost from day one, he's been confronting problems. Here's just a brief summary for you. In chapter one, he faced a personal problem. Nehemiah had received a devastating piece of news about the state of Jerusalem that actually, it says, broke his heart and shaped his destiny. 
So in chapter one, he faced this personal problem. It lasted for months. In chapter two, he faced an employment problem. How can a palace official like him convince his boss, the king, to give him a career break to go and rebuild walls and rebuild people? An employment problem. Chapter three, he faces an admin and a material problem. How was he going to actually organize and shape this project, particularly whenever there were lots of people who weren't willing to help him? Chapter four, last week, he faced a physical problem of imminent attack and opposition that was coming at him from all sides. He also faced a psychological problem of discouragement from within the people. Heads were beginning to drop. And now here, in chapter five, he faces a serious economic and social problem. Poverty and injustice are a clear, present, and tragic danger. So please stand with me for the public reading of God's awakening word. And Matt, if you can flick through these next slides for me, it'd be great. Let's read together. Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised the great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are all of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards now belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and the officials and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and their vineyards and their olive groves and their houses and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, olive oil, We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And this 
the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they were promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judea, on Judah until this 32nd year, that's 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food that were allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All the men were assembled here for the work and we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. And each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Grab a seat. Realize that was a, a long reading. Thank you. Whenever, whenever you see poverty, whenever you encounter injustice, what do you do? What do you do? What do I do? How do you react to Syria's forgotten children? To the video we saw last week. To the dismantling of the jungle. And those 1,500 kids who have got no families who were bussed to dear knows where because they can no longer live in shipping containers. How do you react to the Samaritan's purse shoebox appeal? How do you respond to the statistic that an estimated 5.5 million children are living in slavery in our world? What is your response to the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the downtrodden? Whenever Nehemiah heard their cry, whenever he was informed of the charges that were being brought by them against their fellow Jews, it says, according to verse 6, I got very angry. And before we kind of consider that response, let, let's recognize the fact that he heard them. He, he didn't turn away. He didn't turn a deaf ears to their cry for help. You see, in my life, and I'm speaking personally this morning, in my life, the danger is, or the tendency is, to switch off, or to turn over, or to flick to the next page, or to bend the information. 
I block out the issues. I avoid the uncomfortable facts. The, the voice or the cry of the poor hasn't become silent. They haven't stopped screaming. I've just stopped listening. You see, there are far too many other voices that bend my ear and demand my attention. There's this kind of orchestra of sound that tends to drown out the cry for a cup of clean water or the plea of the farmer in Guatemala for me to buy his fairly traded coffee. Nehemiah listened. He heard the voice of the poor and he got angry, properly angry, righteously angry. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary and entirely appropriate to express our anger against social injustice. In fact, to remain passive seems a sin. Maybe it is. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and there is a personal dimension to righteousness. There is a call to personal holiness in this, but it's impossible to read your way through the Old Testament in any depth at all without recognizing that the language of righteousness also applies to the ordering of society. To the ordering of society, a fair society. Got a hunger and thirst for this. Listen to Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? Then your righteousness will go before you. You see, Jesus calls us to hunger and thirst for this. But here's the question I've been asking myself this week. Have I lost my appetite? Has our dry throats and aching bellies for righteousness gone to the extent that we're no longer moved or disturbed or angry by the scandal that according to UNICEF and many other organizations, 22,000 children will die today because of poverty. And tomorrow. And every day this week. Now I fully accept that the global issues are complex. And they're vast. And even the local context is complicated. A few months ago, Belfast Telegraph ran an article confirming that 100,000 children in Northern Ireland are now living in poverty. 100,000 kids in our community are living in poverty. Whenever we encounter injustice, how do we respond? Do we get angry? But although anger is an appropriate response, it, it, it's never a sufficient one. Nehemiah's heart was moved, but did you notice that he then engaged his mind. Look at verse 7. I pondered them. In other words, I pondered, I thought about, I reflected on, I considered the outcry, the cries of the poor. 
I considered the charges that were being brought by them against those who were exploiting them. I pondered them in my mind. His emotional distress making him angry led him to think and to reflect about the situation that people were living in. And, and that, that's the challenge. And again, as I say, I'm speaking personally this morning. I see the images on TV. I watch a video like we sat here and watched last week about Syria. I listen to the sound bites, to the t- statistics, and I am impacted And I do experience a sense of anger at the injustice that's in the world, but all too often, my response stays on that level. My heart is moved, my emotions are stirred, but in half an hour, I've deleted the file from my mind or I've chosen to think about something else, anything else. Or or compassion fatigue kicks in. Because let's face it, we're inundated with appeals. We get another circular, another email from Tear Fund, from Christian Aid. Constantly programs on our TV like Children in Need and Comic Relief and Sport Relief. Another video that we're asked to watch in church. Another tin rattled in our face. Another big issue seller to negotiate. And we just become overwhelmed. Or will become indifferent due to the sheer volume of the need and the complexities that accompany them. And therefore, we just don't have the energy, or if I'm honest, the desire to ponder this thing through. To think it through. And the problem is, unless our minds are engaged, unless we actually consider the realities, we'll probably never make a specific response and do anything. And Nehemiah's heart is moved, his mind is engaged, and his will is activated. He did something. And so he rebukes the nobles, and he rebukes the officials, and those who were exploiting the poor. And then he calls everyone together for a public meeting to deal with the problem. And Nehemiah calls it as it is. In verse 9, he says, listen, do you know something? See what is happening, what you're doing? It's not right. It's not right. And Nehemiah knows that it's wrong to live selfishly. It's wrong to live indifferently to the needs of those around you. And so he seeks to do right. There is never a right time to do wrong. And there's never a wrong time to do right. And and Nehemiah asks them a pointed and a direct and an uncomfortable question, middle of verse 9. He says, should you not walk in the fear of our God? Think about this with me. You see, to believe in a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of justice means that our behavior must reflect these qualities Otherwise, we disrespect God. It it honestly is that serious. It might sound extreme, but, but listen to this gem from Scripture's wisdom literature. He, next one there for me, Matt, if you can. He who oppresses the poor 
shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. That, that's pretty explicit. You see, Israel's wise men taught their communities this proverb. But here in Nehemiah's day, they'd forgotten it. They decided to neglect it. They were not walking in the fear of their God. They had lost reverence and respect. And it kind of goes further. So let me read the rest of this sentence and finish the question. Because what he then says is, sorry, Matt, if I can have an action on this one, this doesn't mean we're working. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? Who was ever going to believe that Israel's God was kind, was merciful, was compassionate whenever his children, his people, his worshipers were being cruel and unsympathetic and mean and unjust toward their brothers and sisters? You see, Nehemiah knew that actions speak louder than words to a watching world. He knew that as people looked on and saw Christians, saw the people of God taking advantage of each other, exploiting each other, not caring for the poor amongst them, in fact, adding to their misery. Do you know what Nehemiah was saying? You see, if our enemy nations witness us getting on like this, they're just going to mock us. And they're just going to have a laugh at us. Because actions speak louder than words. Nehemiah recognized the pressing need for a consistent, not only verbal, but also visual testimony to a watching world. And that same consistent testimony is essential from Christians today. Otherwise, when I say to anybody, do you know something? God is love. And God is kind, and God is merciful, and God is compassionate. Unless they see that in my life, in how I treat the poor, and how I respond to injustice, anything I say, or most of what I say, is just going to fall in deaf ears. I said at the beginning, how we treat the poor and respond to injustice are litmus tests of our Christian faith, and there's very little that threatens our Christian witness more than a selfish attitude. And I can be so selfish. But whenever you encounter people who are compassionate and who are selfless, it speaks volumes. Whenever you see a video like last week and you see what people like BMS are doing for Syrians, serious forgotten families and forgotten children, whenever you see the impact that those shoe boxes have on those children who receive them, whenever you read about what organizations like Tear Fund and many, many others are doing to address poverty and suffering and injustice, it's humbling and it's encouraging and it's inspiring. Because you see, their witness to an unbelieving world is vocal, it's visual, and it's authentic. See, how we treat the poor and respond to injustice will either point people towards God or will affirm their belief that there is none. Nehemiah knew that the surrounding nations and their enemies were never going to take them or their God seriously if they continued to live these inconsistent lives. And so he did something. 
And I just want to finish by thinking about, well, what motivated this guy? What, what prompted him to do something? What inspired him to do something? And there's just two things. I just want to leave these with, with you this morning. I've been thinking these through in my own life this week. Just two things. The first is found in verse 15. Where Nehemiah says, Do you know, out of reverence for God, I didn't act like everybody else. Out of reverence for God. You see, that was Nehemiah's burning desire to please God. And as we read our way through his memoirs, as we have been doing, we discover he had an incredible respect and reverence for God that dictated how he lived. Nehemiah consistently acknowledged God's holiness and power. Just last week, he gathered people together and he says, please everyone, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah had this big view of God, and it manifested itself in three ways. Nehemiah was committed to honoring God's name, obeying God's word, loving God's people, and in our daily walk with our God and our journey of faith, these should be our priorities. What have I done this week to honor or dishonor God? How has God's word shaped my response to people this week. Have I loved my neighbor as myself? Nehemiah served the Lord with reverent fear. Back in chapter one, after he prayed, he identified himself alongside all those who delighted to fear God's name. This morning, Psalm 147, we read together. Did you notice that line in the last slide that Richard had for us? The Lord delights in those who fear him. And it was this reverential fear that determined Nehemiah's contact or conduct. Out of reverence for God, he couldn't ignore the poor or turn a blind eye to injustice. And this week, that's what the challenge has been for me. David, where do you stand before God? What, what is your view of God, really? On Sunday nights, as we've been thinking about Proverbs, where we've been saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we have defined what it means to fear the Lord as having awe, respect, and reverence. And I've been asking myself, and I've been asking us, how do we stand before God? Do we stand in awe, in reverence, and in respect? Because if we do it, we'd seem that out of reverence for God, we will not act like everybody else when it comes to how we treat the poor and respond to injustice. And secondly, Nehemiah was motivated by compassion for others. Quickly, verses 17 and 18. You maybe picked up as we read together that as the governor of Judah, which according to verse 14, Nehemiah still seems to be at some level, that means he could have lived extravagantly. 
He could have. But instead, he chose to live generously. You see, due to his senior position, Nehemiah was given a food allowance and a pretty impressive drink allowance as well. But because people all around him were kind of struggling to make ends meet and were living in poverty, he chose to deny himself certain luxuries. And that's an uncomfortable test of our compassion. Are we prepared to go without in order to share? Are we prepared to sacrifice luxury in order for someone to have a necessity? Nehemiah's generosity was outstanding. Did you notice from verse, 100, or from verse 17, he had 150 Jews and officials plus those from surrounding nations to eat at his table, some table. Nehemiah demonstrated compassion. He didn't just feel sorry for people. He actively did something to alleviate their suffering. You see, compassion is suffering. The constant willingness to share in the suffering of others. The apostle John put it like this in a stinging question. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God The early Christian churches were left in no doubt about their responsibility to the poor. It was a solid demonstration of their love for God and their love for the people that their God had created and treasured. Nehemiah got that. And therefore his reverence for God, his compassion for others, compelled him to do something. And so what about us? What about me? I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And we're going to close with our final song. And I'd invite us to use these words as, as a kind of prayer. That may the God of the poor and the friend of the weak give us compassion, we pray. May he melt our cold hearts if necessary and ignite our love for the oppressed and the vulnerable. Let's stand together. And as we do that, and I, I, I kind of, I've written down here, apologize. Because uh, in some ways I, I realize that, that this could have come across like another rant <laughs> or an attempt to send people in a guilt trip. And I hope this morning you've kind of heard me through the filter off. I've really been trying to apply God's word to my own life this week and hold it up as a mirror and kind of say, God, how does my life reflect your word, your heart for the poor and for those who are treated unjustly? So I apologize if it's come across like a rant. I pray that what is off God will be remembered and applied. Let's stand again.